Hey, all, my name's Mike. I'm an alcoholic. I've been sober since July 19th, 87. And, uh, and I am overjoyed with that fact today. I'm overjoyed. I love Alcoholics Anonymous, and I love being with you people. Um, and uh, I want you know I want to thank you guys for uh, for the privilege to come out here and share with you. Um, it has been you've treated us, uh, well, treated me in particular. I'll speak from my own perspective. Um, you've treated me very well. I've had a I've had a great time. I, I'm a little disappointed that you wouldn't let me go to work because uh, that's all I know how to do. You know I get around to one of these deals and I like to work and I like to be a part of. It. I like to get in. I like to I like to do things. I like to make coffee. I like to, uh, that's just what I do at my home group. It's just what I do. You know. I like to be busy in Alcoholics Anonymous. I like to be in the middle of it. Um, you know, my, my sponsor told me in the beginning that, um, you know, there's, uh, there's many different types of people in AA. And, and it's like if you were to take us all and put us in a big circle, you'd have people throughout that portion of the circle. You'd have some in the middle, you'd have some on the, you know, out in the edges, and then you'd have some that are playing right on the edges. And he said the difference between, you know, outside the circle is drinking. And he told me if I was sitting on the edge of that circle and I were to take one step backwards, I'd be drunk. But if I were to plant both my feet firmly in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous and do what the people in the center of Alcoholics Anonymous did, that when I started to back out, the force in the center would push me back to the center. And that's why, that's why I, I believe that example, and I've witnessed that time and time again of people playing on the fringes of Alcoholics Anonymous and going back out and getting loaded. And I believe that example holds true for me today. And that's why I like to sit in the center of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, because when I, when, I, uh, when I say I'm an alcoholic, it means something to me. It means that I've been given a death sentence um, with the disease of alcoholism. I have been given, and I truly believe that, I have a death sentence when I say I'm an alcoholic. And that my life, in order for me to get a daily reprieve or a daily stay from an execution... Um, I have to do certain things to ensure that I that I survive this death sentence, you know. And and so that's that's for me. I live on death row every morning. When I wake when I wake up in the morning, I have to do some things that allow me to live another day on death row uh, and sit with you people. And that's that's what I that's what I believe when I say I'm an alcoholic. That's what I'm talking about. I I was sitting with the guys I sponsor last week, and we went through the big book and picked up every reference to the word dead, death, fatal, or doomed. And there's a lot of them. Well, there's a lot of them. We found this business with resentment is infinitely grave. In fact, for us, we found it was fatal. You know, and uh, and you know, and that, that's what I suffer from. That's the disease I suffer from. So that's you know, I am not a uh, a heavy drinker. I'm not a moderate drinker. What I what I what our book says is that is that people that are moderate drinkers can quit if they have sufficient reason. People that are heavy drinkers can quit if they have sufficient reason. Bad health you know, a bad marriage, something like that, they quit. I'm an alcoholic who has lost the power of choice. I cannot choose whether I will drink or not drink. I have lost the power of choice. When I, when I do things my way, I drink. That's, that's, all, that's my experience. And so I've been, uh, you know, I'm going I'm to share with you what I used to be like, what happened to me through the process of working in the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and what I'm like today. Uh, in 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 the in my best recollection, right? Which sometimes is you know, hey, on any given day you never know. Story changes, but you know, I I uh, I uh, every speaker I have heard from the podium of Alcoholics Anonymous, bar none, has always said one thing: I never felt like I fit in. 
I've heard every one of them say that. I was born Catholic in Salt Lake City, Utah. <laughs> you know, it's like, man, strike three right out of the gate, you know? Um, and, you know, I've, and I, I have always had these feelings of, uh, you know, I, I am, the best description of me is I'm a 50-yard runner in a 100-yard race, you know? I look at things like this. I think, I'm going to go attack this. I'm going to go at this. But, you know, and I'm going to get, we're going to run a relay race, you know? And I'm going to get in the starting gates, and I get in the blocks, you know? And I'm like, I'm, this is it. Running's my deal. I'm going to do it today. I'm going to run. I'm going to be a winner. I'm going to be a runner. And, and I get in the gates, and they shoot the gun off, and I'm hauling butt. I mean, I'm just going and going and going. That first guy passes me, and I go, screw this. You know, I, I don't like running. I never have liked running. It's, this is a ridiculous sport. You can drive and get there a heck of a lot quicker. Why would I bother with this type of garbage? And, and I'm, I'm a quitter. If I can't win, I'm a quitter. And I've got these things going on in my head long before taking a drink. Long before taking a drink. I've got this struggle to the top of the heap or hide underneath it kind of a deal. I'm just a, you know, I'm, I can't figure out what's going on in my head. I just can't. No. You know, I... Uh, I have, uh, I, I, I was born a very good breeding stock. I mean, I have, I've got, we are grade A beef in my family. I mean, I'm, we, this is, this is good. My parents are class A. Um, there, there's wonderful people. Neither of them are alcoholic. Now there's a little alcoholism that runs in my family. My Uncle Dick, he tried chick. It didn't stick for Uncle Dick. Um, he, uh, he's still enjoying a few light wines uh, every now and then. But, uh, you know, and my, my, my grandfather, uh, he, as a matter of fact, got sober in, in Utah back in the early 40s, and, and he had a drink on his 50th wedding anniversary, you know, um, and had, you know, and had some time uh, in this program. And so there's, there's alcoholism in my family. Um, but that's not any reason I can point to for the fact that I'm an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic because once I start to drink, I have little control over the amount I take. You know, I, and for some reason, alcohol does something for me. It doesn't seem to do to the normal people. It instantly changes my perception. Instant, instantly, when I take a few drinks of alcohol, I, you know, I, I run around most of the time like this. I'm a little uptight. I'm just a little uptight and a little tense. You know, I got things going on. But you take and put a few drinks in me, and my shoulders go from 30 degrees up angle to 30 degrees down angle. And I just, you know, and, and I've heard my heroes talk about it, the feeling of, man, when I take a drink, the world is all right. Just all right. And, you know, I, uh, I started out, um, you know, I started out, and I was, I, when I was growing up, I was adamantly opposed to drinking alcohol. My sisters, I had watched them drink and get in trouble. I'd watched them use some outside issues, and I'd watched them get in trouble um, with that kind of stuff, and I was determined I was never going to drink. And I, and I was dead set against it. I watched all my friends get in trouble and thought, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be good. And I set off on a trail of school, and I was always top of my class in school. And, uh, um, you know, I was just the boy next door. I was a good, you know, just the golden boy next door, good in sports, good in all this stuff, and was determined I was never going to drink until one day. You know, that book, the line of the book, suddenly the thought, right? Suddenly the thought. Gosh, why don't I give it a try? And, uh, I, uh, I have the privilege of, of sponsoring a lot of guys, and I always ask them, do you remember your first drink? Some of them do, some of them don't. And then I ask them, do you remember your first drunk? 
And without question, they all go, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I remember that one. Because my first drunk had some type of impact on me that I want, that, I, that was almost a career obsession to pursue. It, it made me feel different than I'd ever felt before. It made me feel some the sense of ease and comfort that our book talked about when I, took, when I had that first drunk. I'd had sips of beer and stuff up to that point, but when I got that first drunk, and, I, and, I, and I'll tell you how, how much of an impact it had on me. I was uh, in the 10th grade. It was December. I was in a Z28 with Rob Moss, Jeff Kramer, and Chuck Ligon, in that order, in the car. Rob Moss was 16. He had a full beard. And, uh, and he was the one that could buy beer because they didn't card much. And we got, we got a case of Michelob, a six-pack for each of us. And now, you know Michelob, the bottle shaped kind of like that, you know? It's got gold foil on the bottom and gold foil on the top, which I thought was a particularly nice feature because it went around the bottle cap. And it didn't chafe your fingers when you opened it. You know, the bottle cap didn't scrape your fingers. And uh, we, uh, we drove to a house um, that one of, his, one of the guy's brothers was watching, and we broke into the house that night. And we sat at the kitchen table, and we played drinking games with this Michelob for about three hours or so. And we cleaned the house up spotless, and we set the alarm, and we left. Um, now, you know, that's, if you're going to break into a house, steal something, set it on fire, do something. You know, we couldn't even get that right, you know. I just broke in, cleaned the place up, and left. And, and I, didn't, I didn't suffer any ill effects that night. I didn't throw up. I didn't, I didn't get in trouble with my folks. I didn't suffer any ill effects or consequences that night. What I felt that night was a feeling like, Man, whatever we did was all right, brother. We need to get, I need to get on that some more. For the, first, for the first time in my life, I just felt okay. I mean, I really did. Everything, all those problems went away for a short period of time. <laughs> we got down here in the front. Um, okay. Uh, so, uh, okay. So, um, excuse me. I, uh, I went off on this deal to pursue this feeling, whatever this feeling was, this thing, this whatever this magic thing that alcohol did for me, I went off to pursue this. And uh, I uh, started drinking on uh, weekends, you know, and then it became weekends and Thursdays, and then Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then days that end in Y, you know, and it just, you know, just started to, starts to progress a little bit further and a little bit further and a little bit further. and. And then I had, to, I had this deal, I was going to go off to college, go down to the University of Texas. And uh, so I get down to the University of Texas, I graduated good, you know, high in my, in my high school class, graduated 41st out of 750 students, and I, you know, I had the gold stall and all that stuff, and was doing really good, and, uh, and so I, uh, I go down to the University of Texas, and uh, I had, uh, I made a fatal mistake as I planned my curriculum at, uh, at uh, University of Texas. I figured, here's my thinking. Okay, I'm going to schedule 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock, 9 o'clock to 10 o'clock, and 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock classes. Then I can get out, grab some lunch, go to the union, do my studying, and then I can go socialize at the fraternity house for a little while, and then come home, get a good night's sleep, and start all over again. I'll have, you know, what a great idea. Sounds good, doesn't it? Sounds like a great idea. There's only one problem. It became very difficult to get to an 8 o'clock class when I was coming in at 7.30 from the night before. You know, and my grades directly reflected that. See, they had set up a social schedule for me at the University of Texas that I was very appreciative of. Monday night was Monday night football. 
Well, you got to drink on Monday night. Keg of beer at the frat house all the time. You got to have a few drinks on Monday night. Tuesday night we had a mixer with a sorority, and we, you know, and so that was the deal. You go, you mix with a sorority, and you got your date for Friday. And so, you know, I don't know about you, but I am not the greatest person at talking to girls. But give me a few tequila shots, and I'm a wizard with talking with the ladies. You know, I can work the ladies when I've had a few tequila shots with me. Wednesday night they were nice. They gave us an optional night to study. It was college and everything, you know, that was nice of them to do that. Uh, Thursday night, as far as I'm concerned, is the start of the weekend in Austin, Texas. It, it is, has, and always was, will be. Um, and then Sunday, you know, Friday and Saturday go without saying. You, I was drinking on those nights. And then Sunday came around, and it was another optional day to study. Uh, or I guess you could go to church if you wanted to. That never really interested me much. Um, but they always had kegs of beer at the frat house, and uh, we watched football on Sunday. And that was pretty much my routine for... For, for the next year. It, it, I, I, you know, I was pretty much a daily drinker with the exception of my optional night on Wednesday. You know? And I just started on a, on a tear of drinking. And I, uh, I, um, I did so good at my craft, not college, but drinking, that uh, I, got, I got kicked out of my fraternity for drinking too much. And I was like, the whole point of joining the damn thing was to drink in the first place. And I did it too good, you know? So I, you know, but that's, the, our book talks about, our book, Bill uses the term, renewing my resolve. I'd prove to them. You know, I'd prove to them that I was a man with, you know, with talent. And, I'd prove to them. So I renewed my resolve, threw myself back into school, and, and, uh, and started going after it. And the next year, I worked. I got a full-time job, and I'll show you guys. I drank as hard as I could, and, and I ended up making the dean's list that next year and thinking, I got it all together. I got it. I am all on board with it. I got it all together. And uh, I uh, started getting into um, a few of those outside issues that would enable me to drink around the clock. Um, and so I'd take some of that stuff. And I, uh, you know, my, li my life, let me just describe a typical day at the last days of my drinking. I, I have lost the privilege of waking up somewhere along the line. And I, I come to in the morning I don't I don't I don't recall popping out of bed oh yay another day you know well look at the sun's up and the flowers yay I don't recall doing that I scrape my head off the pillow and I come to and uh, and I and I and my thought you know that that's when my thoughts start to race oh my god what did I do last night what is my car here you know, I have to, we were talking about this earlier, I have pulled the credit card receipts out of my wallet to see where I've been to try and trace my steps back. And uh, I might pull this number. I can remember this one, calling, picking up the phone and calling my buddy Andy who lived down the, in the couple apartments down. I'd say, Andy, um, we had a good time last night, didn't we? Yeah, man, we had a great time. What did we do? Uh, I'm kind of missing a few pieces in there. I remember... You know, I remember one night, one morning, I came home, and my 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 ear was swollen, and it was there was blood all over my pillow, and I went to the mirror and I looked at them, and I had an earring in my ear, and I had no, I, I was like, oh, geez, what the, what did I do last night, you know? And I came back and I, I, I so I call, make that curious phone call, uh, Andy, um, I got an earring, man, can you help me out with this one, you know? What did I do? And he said, well, you fell in love with this bartender, and, uh, and y your expression of love toward her was to have her shove her earring through your ear. So she just took it out and shoved it through. That's some good sound thinking, don't you think? 
that's, that's my peculiar mental twist. That's the kind of smart decisions I make, you know. And uh, so that's, you know, so those are the kind of things I do in the morning. And now here's where the strange part comes in, is I go through the morning terror and madness. And our, our book talks about that, that morning terror and madness, where it's like, oh, my God, am I okay? And look at the police reports and that kind of stuff. And am I okay? And I'm, okay, I'm clear. Everything's good. The car's here. I figured out, I've retraced my steps, okay, I, I, I got most of my lies that I told the people, they're all corralled, everything's okay. Um, maybe it wasn't that bad. It's, no, I'm really, I'm, I'm overreacting. I'm really overreacting. It really wasn't that bad. And come about three or four o'clock, it's time to head off to the beer store. And so I head off and I've got, I know where I've cashed checks because by this time I'm writing hot ones. So I'm working all the convenience stores around to see where, okay, where do I have, you know, places and times that I haven't written a check so I can go write one so they won't catch me, you know. And uh, uh, I'm doing that deal and then I end up out on the town again. Uh, I like to drink in bars. Uh, My my parents made a fatal mistake one year. They they got me a credit card. And uh, I... uh, I went. To, I used to go to this bar called Speedy's. All right, my parents will swear to you today that that's an auto care place. <laughs> it's like, gee, what? You've been you visited Speedy's three times this week. What? What is going on? I, I, oil change, you know, wipers, you know, I the car tune up, you know, you run out of those awful quick. But I, I would do that stuff, and and then you know, and I'd go into I'd go into the night, and I and I drink, and I drink, and I drink, and. And then I, you know, I usually stumble in sometime uh, late in the, in, well, in the early morning hours, and I would finish off my evening by throwing up, um, you know, which is a lovely way to cap a night off. You know, dates really appreciate that. Um, and and then I and then I'd pass out and I'd start the day in the exact same manner, going, you know, maybe going to the refrigerator and getting a beer to start the morning off. What a lovely way! To, what a great existence! And that was. That was my, that's the way I lived. And that's, that's, I don't have any spectacular stories. I just, I drank. I just, I mean, I drank and I drank and I drank and my life slowly but surely got, just got more miserable and more miserable and more miserable. And here's what happened to me is, is, uh, I got to digress just a second. When, When I was in my junior year of college, I had come back from Austin to Dallas. And, you know, our book talks about this idea that deep down inside is the fundamental idea of God. And I believe that. I believe that idea was there. I was looking for something. I started trying to go to this church to find some type of solution. I had no idea what the problem was. And so I, I ended up getting this summer job at, at a water park, okay, at one of those, you know, those big slides and that kind of stuff. And I got this job at this water park, and uh, there was a group there from Campus Crusade for Christ, Okay. And these guys took an interest in me. They knew that I wasn't clicking on all eight cylinders, you know. They, they took an interest in me. And so I used to come and, you know, I, I'm drinking around the clock pretty much all the time, even at work. And, you know, the scary thing about my selfishness and self-centeredness is, is I'm a lifeguard taking care of your kids at a public water park, and I'm drunk pretty much around the clock taking care of your kids. I'm so selfish and self-centered, I can't even think about taking care of your kids. I'm just doing whatever I want, whenever I want it. And uh, so anyway, I'm, I'm coming in one morning at 5 or 6 o'clock in the morning. That's what time we had to get there. And it's August in Texas, and it's hot, and it's humid. And I'm coming off a drunk, and I, and I start to sweat, and I don't smell very good, and I'm slightly irritable, just ever so slightly irritable. And, and, 
in would come these singing, happy, jumping, joyful campus crusaders. And, and we'd be setting up these chairs and stuff, and I'm struggling. And they'd start to ask me questions. And just loaded, fish hook kind of questions. They'd say things like, Mike, who do you think the most important man ever to walk on the face of the earth was? And I'd be like, oh, man, Ted Nugent, I don't know, you know, rock and roll. And, uh, and they'd say, well, we think it was Jesus Christ. I'm like, oh, man, sucker punch. You got me again. You guys always set me up like this. I know better than to answer your stupid questions, right? But you always set me up. And, uh, but these guys, you know, these guys, they took an interest in me. They took, they took a serious interest in me, and they were determined. So I got involved with them for a little while, trying to fix this malady, whatever it was, but I had no idea what the malady was. And, they, you know, and so they, uh, they got me involved, and I got a sponsor in this deal, except they call it a disciple. And I went to big book studies, except they were Bible studies. And I tried to figure out what was wrong with me in this place. Okay? And, and I would go, uh, you know, I'd go door to door with them, handing out pamphlets and proclaiming the gospel to these poor people that happened to get in my path, you know? And I would, I would grab one of these pamphlets and knock on a door, and someone would open the door, and I'd thrust a pamphlet in their face and say something brilliant like, Turn or burn, you want what I got? You know? And, uh, you know, I, I haven't read a pamphlet. I don't have any idea what's in this thing. And I'd start to argue with you about why you should do what I do, you know? And I, having no idea what the heck I'm talking about. And I, here's, you know, what's even worse is I would get rid of my, my last pamphlet. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal an Helen on term real quick if it's all right. And I would detach from my brethren, okay? I would detach from them. And I would go home and I would shower. And I'd clean up. And I'd grab a few pamphlets, tuck them in my pocket, and I'd go to the bar line up a few, knock a few back, get good and lubricated and full of the spirit, you know? And out would come the pamphlets, you know? And I'd start spreading the gospel, drunker than Cooter Brown, in the bar, you know? What a wonderful message. I know what frothy emotional appeal is, you know? I know that. It's the dry spit on the corner of my lips when I'm sharing the message in the gospel to you drunk. That's my frothy emotional appeal. And that's you know, that's, uh, deep down inside me, I was looking for some kind of answer. I had no idea what the problem was. I had no idea what my malady was. I, I had absolutely no idea. And so um, I, uh, you know, I had uh, made a very bad mistake. I had uh, this little girl that I was dating at the time. I told her some of these things that were going on in my life. And... Uh, she was particularly upset with me because I, I, was, I had a bad case of not being able to show up where I was supposed to be for days at a time. Um, and, and one night uh, I decided to go on a little road trip and told her I'd be back at 10 o'clock. And uh, she was sitting up waiting for me. And uh, an ad for a treatment center came on the TV. And she was nice enough to make me an appointment for the next morning. There is no end to her goodness, you know, uh, just no end. And so she called me the next morning, and um, surprising to me, she was in good spirits, which was not normally the way I received a phone call when I didn't show up. And she said, let's go to breakfast. 
should have known something was up, but no, let's go to breakfast. So, so we went to breakfast, and what she ended up doing was she drove me to the front door of this treatment center and said, go in and talk to this guy. And uh, I was like, oh, well, all right. So I walked in there, and, uh, and uh, this, this counselor guy um, comes out and sits across from me and says, do me a favor. Uh, why don't you take this little quiz? And it's that the 44 questions to the alcoholic. And so I'm like, hey, right, you know, I'm in college. You know, I can make a 68 on this, get out with a D, and we'll be in good shape, you know? Uh, and so, so I'm reading the first question. It's like, do you ever drink alone? And I'm like, damn right I do. You know, I got lots of spare time. You bet I drink alone. It's like, do you ever hide your alcohol? I got roommates. Of course I hide my alcohol, you know? If you had my roommates, you'd hide yours too. You know? And uh, the next one was, uh, do you ever feel like you need to be the leader of the party? I'm like, well, if you knew the crew I hung out with, they need a leader, and I'm him. You know, of course I need to lead the party. And so I'm going through circling yeses and noes to all these different deals, and, and uh, I come up with 28 circled yeses out of 44. Okay, and the counselor comes back in and sits back down and says, uh, so, so how'd you do? I said, well, better yet, let, let's, let's approach it this way. If you answered yes to zero or one of these, you can probably walk out of here a free man today. If you answer yes to one or two, you may have a problem with alcohol. If you answer yes to two or more, you're probably an alcoholic. And I'm looking at 28 circled yes answers on my symptom sheet going, what's my category? You know, where, where do I belong? And, uh, you know, he said, uh, you know, he said are, are you ready to check in? And I said, no. No, I'm not, I'm not ready to check in. I, you see, I don't have, I don't, I don't have a problem. I, there's, I, don't, I don't have, this is not my problem. See, in, in, my, in my peculiar mental thinking, alcohol was the thing that made me feel better. It made, it, that, so it couldn't be the problem. It, alcohol made, why would I want to take away the only solution I had? It made me feel better. You can't, that can't be taken away from me. There's got to be something else we can look at. That's why this avenue of the church looks so attractive. I could just get this God thing, we'd be okay. You know, these, these guys even from Campus Crusade for Christ, they, uh, you know, they said, they say things like, Mike, we don't think drinking's a good idea. And I, my retort, my brilliant retort, yeah, but Jesus drank wine on the cross. And uh, they say, yeah, Mike, that, that might be true. That, that we concede that might be true. But uh, we don't recall Jesus going down to Enzo's bar and ordering 12 kamikazes at a time. <laughs> you know, uh, we can't find that in our book, you know. Um, and, you know, I'll tell you what, uh, Campus Crusade for Christ did one of the best things that they could, they could have done for a guy like me. Is this sponsor guy, he sat down for me one day and said, I cannot help you. I do, I do not know how to help you. There's nothing I can do. I'm going to have to let you go. And he fired me. You know, he, he said, There's not, I don't have any idea how to help you. And, but the great thing about that was that set in motion the path for my desperation. I'm beyond, I'm beyond, there's, nothing, there's, not, there's no help for me. I'm, I'm a goner. There's no help. And, you know, I, I'm so grateful to that guy today for saying, I can't help you with a problem I don't have. I'm so grateful for that precedent. It seems to hold true in Alcoholics Anonymous as well. I can't help you with a problem I haven't had. You know, I can't help. And thank God that guy did that for me because I started, I started down this road of absolute despair. Of this, like I said, this 24-hour a day, seven day a week, 
waking up in despair, going to drinking, 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 waking up in despair, going, going, drinking, drinking, waking up in despair. This endless cycle, this endless deal, time and time again, day after day, to the point where, you know, I uh, I got absolutely miserable. And uh, after that little encounter with the uh, the detox center, what you know, if a million people tell me I got a tail, I'd better start looking for one. And uh, and what had happened is there was some mounting evidence that was coming up. And what I started doing is I started to grow a tail. You know, I'd start to sit down, and that thing would bush up behind me, and I'd put my pants on, there'd be that thing bushing back. I'm like, man, what the heck is going on? I get some bigger pants, you know. Um, but I, I I started to grow this this uh, this tail, and and uh, I uh, eventually got desperate enough, and the only thing I knew, I didn't know anything about Alcoholics Anonymous. The only thing I knew was this treatment center I'd been to. So I checked into this for a convenient, you know, ten days and two easy follow-ups, and that was going to fix me, you know, that was going to take care of me. And uh, and so I, I went in, and they told me that the requirement to graduate was to do a fifth step, and they told me, that, and this this is my recollection. I don't know what they told me. I really don't have the slightest idea what they told me. I was pretty foggy when I when I entered this treatment center. But I heard go go to one meeting a week and you have to do a fifth step to graduate. And so so when I was in that five week, it was a five week outpatient deal, and uh, I got in there and they were t- I, man I couldn't. There was so much. It was hard for me to identify in there because they had they had depressives and overeaters and and addicts and I I had a very hard time identifying with what was going on. There was very little one on one. I'm an alcoholic. You're an alcoholic kind of deal. And uh, I I. Uh, I found um, this. Uh, I found this group, um, and I and I cast it off on my one meeting week, and they told me that I had to do this just to graduate. So I followed their instructions. And now, I um I am a big believer in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous and following the instructions that are laid out in the book. Unfortunately, the treatment center I went to didn't see it that way, and I was given um, I was given a Hazelden inventory to take. Okay, and they told me my instructions to take this inventory were lock yourself in a room with a carton of cigarettes and, and a pot of coffee, and don't come out till it's done. I didn't know whether they meant the cigarettes, the coffee, or the inventory, but I was determined to get rid of them all. All right, so I smoked a carton of Marlboro Red cigarettes and drank a whole pot, of, well, more than one pot of coffee, and I went through this thick thing that they had given me, and. I love what our book says in inventory about let's take, you know, let's look at the stuff on the shelf today. Let's an inventory of the things on the shelf today. Well, this, this, the reason I don't like this inventory they gave me is it took me to places that I had no business going. The, one of the questions in there was about my grandmother. You know, I love my grandmother. I love her today. I have always loved my grandmother until I took that inventory. <laughs> if it wasn't for grandma, I'd be okay. You know, if it's God, if it just wasn't for her, and I left that thing with the resentment of my grandmother, it had nothing to do with why I drank. Nothing, nothing. And so I filled up this. Oh God, I just wrote a diary of all this garbage and these questions, and and I don't go to a member of AA to share this stuff with. I go to my Campus Crusade for Christ sponsor guy, and I'm like, let's meet at the union. I got to take this fifth step with you. And uh, so we meet at the union, and I said. Uh, Here's the way it's going to be, James. I'm going to talk. You're going to listen. That's the fifth step in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I'm going to talk, and you're going to listen. He said, can I see what you wrote? And I said, uh-uh, that's not part of the program. <laughs> and I proceeded to dump on this guy my fifth step 
this, I proceeded to unload a wheelbarrow full of garbage on this guy. And I, I wonder today what perception he has of, of Alcoholics Anonymous. Holy mackerel! Wow! You need the church more than ever today, Junior! You know? Um, but, uh, and then I proceeded to go on to my one meeting a week program. Good, solid recovery. One meeting a week. And I proceeded to do that for a year and a half. And I got to tell you, um, six months ago, I would have introduced myself with a sobriety date of January 19th of 87, but I introduced myself with July 19th, 87. And the reason is, is because I go to regular meetings and attend regular meetings and I listen. And I heard a guy say in his meeting, when I was six months sober, I drank some near beer. <laughs> and guess what? When I was in that first six months, I engaged in a little bit of that activity as well and had to change my sobriety date this year because I couldn't, I can't claim time I haven't earned, you know. I had to change my sobriety date because of that. I can't, I can't claim time I haven't earned. And my first six months of sobriety, I wanted to be drunk. I was just taking, I mean, I don't know, I, you know, I was drinking near beer, obviously. That's certainly actions of somebody that doesn't, in my, you know, in my experience, of somebody that doesn't want to stay sober. Just, you know. So, um, I start off on this one meeting a week gig, and, uh, and uh, I'm going to these meetings, and um, I don't have a sponsor. I, uh, I'm doing whatever I want to do when I want to do it. And I, uh, I show up. Well, here's what happened. Is, is I, I started waking up in the morning, and I started looking at myself in the mirror, and I did not like what I saw. I, I could not stand me. I, and, I, and, and my thought was this. I can remember having this conscious thought. If this is all there is to sobriety, it's not worth it. I don't want it. I might as well be drinking. Here's, the scary deal is, is I had not had alcohol in my system in over a year. None. Yet I was Fruit Loops. I was crazy. I, was, I mean, I was absolutely miserable living in my own skin. And it seems to prove to me that alcoholism has absolutely nothing to do with drinking because you take alcohol away from me and I'm still nuts in the absence of this spiritual solution. I'm still nuts. It has absolutely nothing to do with drinking. And so, you know, what happened is, is and I'm going to give a plug to the old timer because I'm so grateful for the old timer that has kept the doors open for me and that has stayed in his seat and that has been active and I'm so grateful for the guy that went to that goes to regular meetings and sits in them because one of those guys saved my life. And I get man, I get I get choked up thinking about this because I'm so grateful for this guy. I'm sitting in a meeting one night sharing about my fourth step and how good it was. And Bill pulled me aside after the meeting and said, Mike, I like everything you say except for what comes out of your mouth. And that, you know what, thank God that guy did that because he saved, that, he saved my life that night. I was at another point of desperation. I was as desperate as the drowning can be, you know. And I love, I love the deal, Jim used to tell the story about, uh, imagine yourself on the Titanic and the Titanic goes down and we're all floating in cold water. And some guys come by in a rowboat and say, Mike, we suggest you get in the boat. And I'm sitting that back there thinking, you know, this cold water's getting comfortable. You know, I'm starting to feel a little numb, and I think after a while I'll be all right. 
No, Mike, you know, if you continue to stay in that water, you're going to drown and die. We suggest you get in the boat with us and do what we do. And that's what, that was the subtle message this guy pulled on me, although I don't think he was that subtle when he spit it out there. He said, uh, he said here's the deal. He didn't throw that out there and walk away. What he said to me is, is, you need a sponsor, and I'm him, and I want you over at my house every Monday night at 8 o'clock until I tell you it's okay not to be at my house on Monday night at 8 o'clock. And the best words that I have ever said or I have ever heard anybody say in Alcoholics Anonymous came out of my mouth that night, and they were simply these. Okay, I'll do it. Because I'm going to die if I keep going the way I'm going. It's good. This, this disease is going to kill me, and I'm, and I'm, so, and I'm, you know, I've got this. I'm not drinking. I'm not drinking, and this deal is, is killing me. And so what, what that guy did for me is he walked me through the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous out of the big book. And he, you know, he told me to focus on only the black parts in the book, that I was not to read any of the white on the pages, you know. I was not to read anything into it that I was supposed to sit down and read that book. And he helped me with things. And I love some of the stuff that John said in the sponsorship meeting. My sponsor pointed out subtle things in my life that I didn't seem to be managing very well. What do you do when you get money, Mike? I spend it. Phil? Oh, interesting. And your bills? What's your bill situation? Well, they're largely unpaid, Bill. Uh, uh, okay. Tell me about uh, what you see when you look in the mirror, Mike. Ooh, that was a bad place to go because I did not like the person that was looking back at me in the mirror. I didn't, you know, and he asked me some of these questions and said, you're managing your life how well now? The condition of your life is what? This is how you're managing your life. You think you might be willing to turn your will and your life over to something maybe a little stronger than you? And for me, you guys, that was when I made that decision to turn my will and my life over to power greater than myself, in the beginning, it was, it was not God. Uh, what I did was I turned my will and my life over to the care of a sponsor in the beginning. He had skin on him. I could see him every day. I trusted him. I mean, he was there. I could, I could, he, and he had something I didn't have. He was some type of power greater than myself at that time. And, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I just trusted and did what he did. You know, I just, all I had to do, he said things to me like, if you want what I've got, then do what I do. Oh, okay. I'll just do what you do. And I didn't have, you know, that deal, what it is that you, that you do. I'll just come with me and do what I do and you'll know. Oh, Okay. Okay, when I'm desperate, that makes good. That's simple, very stuff, very easy stuff for me to follow. When I'm desperate, when I'm not desperate, I question things like that. Oh, gee, <laughs> is that going to be convenient for me to do? Geez, oh, that's going to impact my stars watching games. I don't know. You know, I tell you what, I I I, I scared to think what would what my sponsor would say if I ever was going to miss a meeting to. Uh, to watch a Rangers game or something, a Texas Rangers game, he'd say, why don't you call Alex Rodriguez next time you want to stay sober, you know? <laughs> oh, okay, well, maybe I'll show up to the meeting. And, um, you know, and so I, I would do, I started to do those things, and, and Bill, Bill helped me um, find a God of my understanding by walking through the process of the, of, of the third step, and we did an inventory together. Um, and I was so desperate, you know, it was amazing. He didn't even have to ask me that deal, what'd you leave out in the, when we did the fist up? He didn't have to ask me, what'd you leave out? I was so desperate, I wrote everything down on that inventory in the deepest, darkest secrets that I promised I would never share to anybody I shared with that man. 
I, man, I had to get that stuff out of me. I was so desperate. And, uh, you know, we did six and seven together, and we did eight and nine together. And uh, I love the... Uh, I love the promises in our book, especially those around step nine. See, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I would have been satisfied with, you know what? I'll be happy if I can just forget my past. That would have been, man, if you would have told me that when I came through the door, if I could just forget my past and not live with those demons anymore, I'd have been okay. But here's what happened is I uh, I started getting into this inventory, and uh, I had uh, I had a little kleptomania problem along the way, just a slight one. I worked for Sears and I was changing tires and batteries for years for them and I could, man, I could get whatever you needed out of that auto shop. Tires, batteries, wrenches, whatever you need, car care products, I could get it. And I could get your receipts, make it all look legitimate. And I had a little business working out of that, unbeknownst to my boss. I had a little business working out of that deal. And uh, and one afternoon, I'm, I'm driving past the Sears shop. And i got to tell you this. I'm a power tool fanatic. I get some kind of bizarre testosterone rush when I have a chainsaw in my hand, you know? I like to cut stuff up just for the sake of cutting it up, man. And drills, hammers, circular saws. I bought Dremel bits the other day. I don't own one. <laughs> you know? It's kind of, I just like... I get some kind of bizarre rush, and I'm driving past the Sears one day, and, uh, and I'm thinking, oh my God, I can't go into Sears anymore, because I've got this guilt hanging over my head from all this stuff I stole from them, I, and I, I, can't, oh, I can't own another craftsman tool for the rest of my life, and that scares me, and so I drive to my sponsor's house, as fa- I mean, as fast as that car will get me there, and I walk in, and I said, I've I got to make amends to this deal, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go, and I'm going to go talk to the president of Sears, and I'm going to walk in there, and I'm saying, I'm an alcoholic, I was a bad guy, and I'm, and i got to pay you this money. And he looked at me, and he said, you're a dumbass. <laughs> he said, that's not what you're going to do. This is what you're going to do. And he said, you're going to get a cashier's check, and you're going to add 12% interest to that check. I'm like, but the prime rate's only... He said, Shut up. Shut up. Just do it. And he made me he made me make amends for those tools. He made me he made me go take a take a check to those guys. And uh, and you know I can buy whatever I want at Sears today. I can go into any Sears I want and buy any craftsman tool. And I think that's that's a pretty neat deal. And I would have settled for that. But that's not half of it. See, my sponsor pushed me forward in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, and that's not true. He pulled me forward. He's ahead of me, and he pulled me. Pulled me along. Sometimes I kicked and sometimes I fought. Become my experience. I didn't. It was okay driving past Sears. I had a clear conscience when I did that. I made that amend. It was okay. And uh, that's not even the best part because you get a little further in the book and there's that line of ex- that Henry Ford comments on experience is the thing of supreme value in life. And then it goes on to say that our dark past has become our greatest possession. And the great thing about that is it says it, it, with our dark past, we have the power, the power to avert death and misery for countless others. So here's the deal. is One day I'm sitting across from a guy I'm sponsoring, and he says to me, you know what? I stole, I, I got this deal, and it's eating me up inside. I stole all this money from this place. And, I, and a smile comes onto my face, and it's warmth in my heart, and it's, I know what to do. I know exactly what to, what to tell you to do. I know exactly because I've got experience. 
I know exactly what to tell you to do, and I'm able to use that experience of mine, that thing that I was willing to just turn off, I'm, willing, I'm able to use that to help another guy survive this deadly disease of alcoholism. Man, and I, I could have missed that. I could have missed that privilege of working with those guys and sharing that experience. I could have, if I would have had it my way, I would have missed it. Thank God I've got a sponsor that's stronger than my head. That says, I don't care how you feel. Just go and do. Go and do the stuff. Just go and do it. That's going to be, you know, my wife and I have been talking about this over the past couple weeks. Of, we seem to get a lot of people that get attracted to our fellowship. We have a lot of fun in Alcoholics Anonymous, and they get attracted to the fellowship. I've got a full-size volleyball court in my backyard. And we bring the group over there, and we play volleyball. I have these big giant the neighbors are kind of not really happy with it, but I got big giant floodlights in my backyard, and we play till all hours of the night. We get out there and we just play and we have a good time, and and people are attracted to that. But then it comes time to do the work, and we seem to lose a lot of them when it comes time to do the work. And you know, and what I what I've experienced is that. The fun comes as a result of doing the work and not the other way around. The fun in Alcoholics Anonymous comes from the fact that I spend time at those meetings, that I work those steps, that I continue to pray, that I continue to take phone calls from those guys every Wednesday night and every morning for the new ones. You know, I, can, that's, I continue to do the work. And as a direct result of doing the work, I get to experience the fun in Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's not the other way around. It's attractive. But the fun comes as a result of me getting my conscience cleared and, and being of service. That's where the fun comes. You know, my sponsor told me some simple, simple things like, why don't you carry these principles that you practice at your group into your job? Hmm, okay. I started showing up early to my job. I started getting my boss a cup of coffee like I'd get from my sponsor. I uh, I started telling my boss that I liked him and respected him and that I was grateful to have a job working for him. And I have I have a super relationship with my boss today, um, only because you told me to bring the very same things, this, this very spiritual principles that I apply in Alcoholics Anonymous apply in my job. I go there. I, I he, you know go to be of service. Don't go looking for what you can get out of it. Go to be of service. And, you know, my company's going through, uh, we're laying off 20,000 people over the past two months. And I don't know if I'm going to be one of those guys. I keep waiting for a tap on the shoulder saying, see you later. A lot of fear at work. A lot of fear. But I keep calling and talking to my sponsor and he keeps telling me, Mike, just show up and do your job. Do what we taught you here. Do do exactly what we taught you here at Alcoholics Anonymous. Just carry that very same thing into your job. You know, I started, I worked with a staff last year and uh, and uh Oh, I had a hard time with some of those guys. And my sponsor said, why don't you carry the traditions into your job? Why don't you create an environment of unity? You know, why don't you, uh, you know, why don't you quit being the uh, ultimate authority? You know, why don't you quit playing God in that group? And I started to carry, I started to carry that stuff into my work. And lo and behold, I don't know whether it was me or them that changed, but somebody did. And we ended up, we ended up being a pretty productive little group. Um, I, I'm not capable of coming up with those things. I got a sponsor that tells me to do those things. Um, I uh, and and you know I I I don't want to discount the power of God by any means because God is an absolute integral factor in my life. But I've never had a real direct line to Him. 
I don't know his phone number. I don't. I get down on my knees and I pray every day, but I have to rely on some, some, something with skin on him to, to be tangible evidence, and that's why I watch my sponsor in front of me. I watch him. He's tangible evidence of God doing for him what he can't do for himself. You know? And so I follow that example. I absolutely believe in a power greater than myself, but I absolutely believe in, in, in sponsorship as well. Um, you know, about, uh, about three years ago, uh, me and the guys that, um, that I sponsored, we got a little disgruntled in, our, in, our, in the group we were going to, and, uh, and we decided, let's, let's, well, let's, let's talk to my We were going to talk to my sponsor about starting a group. And uh, so we talked to him, and, uh, and he said, uh, you know, if God wants you to start this group, there's, there's nothing that's going to stand in your way. And if, God, if you're not supposed to start a group, every door is going to shut to you. So we got together and we had a little meeting and, and Dave, Dave said to us, he said, Mike, you as a group need to figure out what your message is going to be. Fifth tradition says, each group should carry its message to the alcoholic who still suffers. What is your message going to be? Because you're going to have to rally around it at some point. You're going to have to rally around it. When someone comes to drive a, found, drive a wedge into the foundation of your group, what are you going to stand up for? And we got together and we talked about what, what's our group going to stand for? And we threw out things like, we want strong sponsorship. We want commitment. We want accountability. We want respect. We want uh, altruism to be one of the guiding factors. We want, we want the spirit to be there. We want love. We want unity. You know, these are the things we want to found our group on, and, and we need to stand firm on those things. And, and so we built that little message, and we didn't know where we were going to meet. We, started, we figured we were going to meet in a church because renting a place, <laughs> there are eight of us, you know, and like the collective total take in the basket might have come to $4 on a good day, you know. And so we were, we were looking, and, and so we, our idea was, well, let's all sit together and we'll pull pages out of the phone book, church pages, and we'll just start calling. And so we picked up pages and, and started calling, and 800 bucks a month, 1000 bucks a month for these itty-bitty little rooms, and nothing would come together. Nothing would just, You know, we were desperate, and we, we got together and we prayed again as a group. All right, God, if it's your will, make it be, and we'll give it another shot. And we, All of a sudden, one day, a Baptist church calls us back, and that kind of was like, whoa. The Baptists want to have something to do with us. Whoo! Well, we need to go give these guys a try. And uh, and so, so we go and we talk to this preacher, and uh, and we sit down and, and uh, we explain a little bit of what we're trying to do. Well, there's, you know, there's uh, we the, our community needs another AA group, and we'd like to be a, a branch of our community. We'd like to try and attract the, those that still suffer in our community, and you know, and we want to reach out to the alcoholics here in Richardson. And, and this guy says, uh, let me tell you something about our church. He said, when two or three people start showing up with the same affliction, we get together and pray. And he said, about two weeks ago, one of our members was suddenly struck with alcoholism. <laughs> it just all oh, came down with it overnight almost, you know. And, and he said, I knew we had a couple guys that were in the fellowship here in the congregation, and so we got together and prayed. And two days after we prayed as a group, you called. You called. He said, and uh, so, so we figured we'd sit down and talk. And he said, we'd like to give you the opportunity to start an AA meeting here. And, uh, we, you know, we knew we were cash poor. And we, okay, so we got to the discussion on rent. And, uh, and he said, that, you know, we, we knew going in that we had to pay rent. We had to be fully self-supporting. We knew we had to do that. And uh, the guy said to us, the preacher kind of shyly, very shyly, and said, well, we, we'd kind of like you to pay for your electricity. And we were like, I think we can do better than that. I think we can give you 20 bucks a month, you know. He's like, deal. And we had two meetings a week. And we started, and we started a closed big book study. 
on Monday night and we started an open speaker meeting on Friday night. And uh, the eight people has grown to about 25 now. There's 25 regular members that sit there. And uh, we have not wavered on what we stand for. And people have, people have come. We've had the treatment center buses show up with new ideas on how we can improve our group. You know, we've had people come and try and drive a wedge in our foundation. And we've all stepped back and said, no, this is what we do here. If you don't like it, please feel free to go somewhere else. But what we like what we've got here. And we seem to be growing. We, and and my, sponsor, my sponsor sponsor told me this. He said, if you give them Alcoholics Anonymous, alcoholics will come. If you give them something else, <laughs> someone else will come. You know? And that's, you know, thank God we didn't try to invent it ourselves. We relied on the experience of the giants that have gone before us. And I found if I, if I you know, I love the line in the fourth step in the big book. The more I fight and try to have matters my way, the worse matters get. But it seems that when I'll submit my will to a sponsor and to the power of Alcoholics Anonymous, my life seems to go okay. You know, I, uh, I uh, have the privilege of uh, being a father. I have a, a, a wife that I absolutely adore who's a member of Al-Anon. Um, an active member of Al-Anon are like, don't try and get it. You're going to get a busy signal if you call after eight o'clock. You know, we have we we sponsor people. We carry the message. Our house. We had two requirements when we bought our house. It had to have an area big enough for a, for a meeting, a living, an inside area big enough for a meeting, and it had to have room for a volleyball court. And you know, the fellowship has has created uh, some type of, of amazing unity in our group, of this deal of getting together. And that's where we practice family recovery is in our, fellow, in our fellowship that happens outside. I've watched my five-year-old daughter, and this is amazing to me. It's the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's a lady um, that I like that said, that talked one time behind the podium about the definition of enthusiasm. That it comes from two Latin words, N, and theos, meaning N meaning within, and theos meaning God, God within. If I'm sitting in a meeting with enthusiasm, and God is within, He has to get out. And if you happen to be sitting next to me, He's getting out on you. Right? He's getting out on you. Enthusiasm, I believe, is infectious. Showing a little enthusiasm at a meeting is infectious, and it has boiled over onto the kids as well. They have seen changes in our lives, and they've seen recovery, and they've taken part in it. I watched my five-year-old daughter. I had a guy that I sponsored that, that carved his wrists up in front of his little daughter in a drunken rage. He car- you know, just took a knife to his wrist, and she was just really emotionally scarred by that. And we started inviting, you know, he, he got in, and he, and he got sober, and he started bringing his daughter over to our house during these fellowship meetings. And I watched what my five-year-old daughter did with her. My five-year-old daughter would go up to her and grab her by the hand and give her a hug and say, come on and play with me and take her into the back room and take care of her. You know? And, and the first time this girl, this guy's daughter, was over my house, she sat in the corner in a ball 
and cried the whole for, for a period of about two hours. Just sat in the corner and cried. We can't shut that kid up today. She is running all over the place, just as happy, just because Daddy got sober and got into Alcoholics Anonymous. And she came and took part in our fellowship that we have outside of our regular meetings. She took part in that. And, and I've, I've, watched, I've watched God do what is apparently the impossible. I've watched him change people that, that, that I didn't think had a chance. You know, that's the power of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's why I believe in keeping a strong base and keeping a strong foundation and, and paying attention to the traditions and, and working work the traditions into my group and understanding why we do the things we do because it, say, it, because it, it changes people's lives. I've seen it happen. It seems to work for the real alcoholic. I had to, I, uh, you know, unfortunately with all the great things that happen, there's the things that happen on the other side too. I, uh, I had the privilege of sponsoring a guy. He's actually the guy that gave us the name to our home group, which is the Into Action group. And, and the reason we named our group is because he, he, was, he was brand new, and he said, he said, I think you should call the group Into Action because I've never seen a bunch of people that's more into action than you guys are. And uh, here's the deal. As I sat with that guy about six months after that, and we, and we, were, doing a, we were sharing a fist step, and I said, Steve, this is what I want you to do. And he said, you know what? I'll do anything but that. I'll do anything but that. I said, Steve, are you willing to go to any lengths? He said, yep, I'll do anything but that. Six months later, we pulled Steve out of a detox center again, and he had blown a 5-5. He was pretty close to death. And uh, he ended up going to, to some, other, some other place, and uh, six months after that, he slit his wrist and, uh, and killed himself, and he hadn't had a drink in six months. He was physically sober and killed himself. Um, I'll do anything but that. I had a guy that I sponsored this week. Um, he, he wrote and wrote me a letter. You know, I hadn't, I'd heard, you know, over the course of his phone calls, he calls every Wednesday night, and over the course of his phone calls, he said, uh, um, I've had about two months of phone calls worth of everything's fine. It's all good. Everything's fine. And I said, I don't believe it. <laughs> you know, if you're an alcoholic, I, I can't, I've never had a span of two months where I've called my sponsor with everything's fine. Now, I'm so well today, my sponsor just gave me direction to call him every day. You know, that's how good I'm doing, you know, on my own unaided resources. Um, but, uh, so I start getting these, uh, I said, Larry, what I want you to do is write this stuff. I want you to write down every day what's going on in your life, and then I want you to give me that, and we'll talk about it when you call. And on his, on his, uh, on his deal, he had missed a meeting because he wanted to go fishing. I politely not all, let all the guys know that he sponsors that when Larry wants to stay sober again, he can call Bassmasters, you know. And uh, he didn't like that. He was a little offended by that. And, uh, and uh, he, he, what he wrote on his deal was, is, you know what, I, I understand AA needs to be a priority in my life, but I need balance too. I need some balance in my life. And uh, all I could think of when I heard that was, see you later. He's just rolling a red carpet out the back of his trousers, getting ready to walk out. See, when I say things like, I need balance, what am I going to get balance as the result of? Giving up my job? Oh, I don't think I'm going to get balanced by cutting back my hours at work. I'm not going to get balanced by spending less time with my wife and kids. I'm going to get balanced at the expense of my meetings and the stuff I do active in Alcoholics Anonymous. That's what I'm going to do. And, that's, and that, was exactly what, that was exactly what I saw. And that kind of deal scares me. 
If I, man, if I start seeking balance, I'm a dead man. I, you know, I am so grateful to sit with your people that I can't, I can't imagine, I can't imagine being, sitting in Alcoholics Anonymous and not wanting to, I don't always want to do this stuff, but I want to sit with you people so bad. I want to sit and, and get everything this program has to offer. I want it, I want it all. I want everything this program has to offer. I love the way I live. And a guy like me is not supposed to get there. A guy like me is supposed to be in jail tonight. A guy like me is supposed to be six feet under. You know, that's what... If I got what I deserve, that's where I'd be tonight. It's just a privilege for me to sit here. And I want to be with you guys so bad, I can't even tell you. And, I, you know, I, I want to close with this, is that... There's a... I, there's a, I'm not a big biblically read student, but I, this, this story, I think, is just so pertinent for me. It's the parable of the talent. Like this, this, this master guy has these three slave dudes that report to him, you know, and, and he goes to the first slave and says, hey, slave guy, come here. I'm going to give you uh, ten of these talents, and I want you to go do something with them. Go do something with these talents. And then he pulls slave two guy in and says, hey, pal, here's five of these talents. Go do something with them. And then number three comes in and he says, hey, here's one. <laughs> You're, you know, we... We're not going to give you any more than one, you know. You're the new guy, all right? We'll give you, we'll give you one. Go do something with them. And some time passes, and the, the master calls the slaves back and says, "Hey, uh, pulls number one and said, what'd you do, number one, with those with those ten talents I gave you?' Master, hey, I took you ten. Here's ten more, twenty total. And the master goes, "My good and faithful servant, you have served me well." Good job. You have, I have a special place for you because you've done, you've done my work. Next guy comes in, five, you know, and says, how'd you do? I gave you five. How'd you do? And he says, Master, uh, you gave me five. Here's ten in return. The Master says, God, great job, number two. You've, done, you've served me well. And the last guy comes in. He said, how'd, how'd you do? And he said, I gave you one. And he said, well, Master, here's one, and I brought you one back. The Master looks at him and goes, wicked evil slave I gave you all this stuff to go do something with and you buried it in the ground and did nothing with it what is wrong with you that, you're the, that is so self-centered you know and that's, my, that's the parable in Alcoholics Anonymous if I come to Alcoholics Anonymous and I choose not to give back what I've been so freely given, I'm more selfish than the day I got here. I'm more selfish than the day I got here. I'm, why, if I've come in here and I've experienced God's grace and I've experienced Alcoholics Anonymous and my life has gotten better, why would I not want you to have it? Why would I not want you to experience what has been so freely given to me? And I'm going to keep it all to myself? Thank God I got strong sponsorship and a group of guys behind me that keep the chain intact. My sponsor pulling me, me pulling them. Left to my own devices, I'll settle for less than the best. But with you, the end is limitless. I mean, there, you know, there's no there's no end in sight what I can do with, with you by myself. I'm a dead man. Thanks for having me.